Well, no. you get murdered when you're getting in the car and your your wife's like, "Let's go!" and just hang on, I'm tweeting this. <laughs> I have to tweet this. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash JavaScript Jammer. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is brought to you by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. Braintree's new V0 SDK makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to braintreepayments.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 186 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have A.J. O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the only day of sunshine this week in Portland, Oregon. Amy Knight. Hello. Dave Smith. Hello. A blast from the past, Aaron Frost. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out for JS Remote Conf. You can go sign up now or enter a call for proposals. We also have two special guests. We have T.J. Van Toll. Hi. And Burke Holland. Hello. And I bless your parents for naming you things I can pronounce. <laughs> so we brought you on today to talk about native script, but before we do that, do you want to give us uh, an introduction? Yeah, so my name is Burke Holland. I work on the developer relations team at Polaric, uh, which is a company that makes tools for developers, all sorts of tools. Historically, like UI kind of stuff, but more recently, platform, low-level kinds of things, um, which is the category that we would put native script into. We'll talk more about that today. I live in Nashville, where it's sunny all the time, AJ. So you can come here whenever you want. Literally, the sun just shines all day, every day. It's sunny with a high of 75. It's like the wow. San Francisco of the South. Yeah. <laughs> sure, just <laughs> rub it in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, you uh, only yeah. need one good day of sun a week. The rest like- is for the plants to get water. I think That's I've true. heard San Francisco called the Nashville of the West, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think actually Nashville came first, so that would be a more accurate statement. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's me. Uh, TJ, go ahead. Yeah, and I'm, I'm TJ. also work at Telerik. Burke is my boss, so I'm probably not allowed to say bad things about Burke during this episode, but we'll see what happens. I, I might be able I, to mute him. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we can always edit that part out. I'm from Lansing, Michigan, where the sun does not always shine, um, <laughs> but... I've been with Telerik for about two years. I come from a web development background. Um, before that, I did some Java development, some other various things, and but mostly working on web development, and then I've gotten involved with the NativeScript project recently. So is it Telerik or Telerik or Telerik? Telerik and Telerik are both proper pronunciations, which is uh, crazy. <laughs> well, there we go. The, the official word right here. <laughs> oh, man. Now, is it native script or native script? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Nativ>. <laughs> it is native script. Ah, official word on that, too. 
So I'm wondering, uh, just as we get started, I was looking at NativeScript, and initially, when I looked at it, I was thinking, are we sure this is native and not, you know, JavaScript core and some uh, web views? But the more I looked into it, I, I was reading through the getting started and kind of fiddling with it, and it's definitely not HTML and CSS. But it threw me for a minute because you talk about JavaScript and CSS. That's correct. And you're actually half right. Um, there is no web view, but there is a JavaScript core on iOS or a V8 on Android. And I'll let TJ explain more about kind of how that is and how that works. Yeah. So with NativeScript, your JavaScript is actually running on the device. So one common thing that we have to sort of get across with NativeScript is not only is there no web view, so there's no HTML being rendered. When you type button, you're not seeing a button. You're actually seeing a UI button, iOS control, or an Android.widget.button, Android control. But not only that is that your JavaScript is also not being cross-compiled. So it's not like NativeScript is taking your JavaScript and turning it into Objective-C code and Java code, but the JavaScript code is actually being interpreted on the device. So JavaScript core would be the, the JavaScript VM that NativeScript uses on iOS and V8 on Android that is being used to interpret your JavaScript code. And then NativeScript, we have these different runtimes for iOS and Android that does sort of the translation process of taking that code and turning it from the web code, the JavaScript code that you're writing, and converting those into the native controls that actually appear in your app. So just to be clear, it doesn't compile to Objective-C runtime and or Dalvec or whatever it is now on Android, and it doesn't run on Cordova. Correct. Yes to both. So pretty similar to how React Native works, right? Yeah, if you were... Yes, somewhat similar. Yeah, I was just going to say that if you were building like a high-level diagram or sort of organizing JavaScript frameworks, you would toss React Native and NativeScript in the same sort of classification. They're similar from a high-level approach, but then the difference is once you get into the details, the sort of frameworks diverge from there. Yeah, I also want to just throw in here that on Monday, I recorded an episode with Cesare Rocchi. He does talks on JavaScript core on iOS. Uh, so go check that out if you want a little bit more on how JavaScript core works on iOS and how iOS developers think about it. So one thing I noticed is that the views, I want to talk about that for a minute because they're XML. So they're not HTML. They're not rendered in a web view. So what are you doing there? Is it close to the XML nibs or zibs or whatever they call them in iOS, or is it completely different? First of all, we don't say XML. We don't like to say XML because that's a dirty word. It's a four-letter word. We just word, say yeah. markup. Yeah, it's a four-letter word. There's that famous quote about XML, you know, it's like violence. If it's not working, you're probably not using enough of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, <laughs> the idea was when, when we first were building NativeScript, we actually looked at all the different ways that we could possibly allow people to declaratively build UIs. And the first one that we looked at, because we wanted to make it simple for web developers to take their existing knowledge and, and go use that um, immediately inside of NativeScript. And so obviously the first one we looked at was HTML. But what we discovered really quickly is that that's super disingenuous because you're basically telling a web developer, hey, write your HTML, and then we're going to try to render something for you that looks similar to what a browser might render, but with native code and controls. Um, and the whole thing kind of degrades really fast, uh, right? You could make it work, but it would be like a huge bait and switch for developers. So we had to stay with markup, but since we weren't using HTML, you know, you kind of the next place you go there is other markup that's not HTML that should not be named. Well, I, I do want to say this. HTML can't be parsed. XML can be parsed. There's actually a specification for it. So it does have like, it's not all bad. It has that redeeming quality. Right. Correct. It's great for user interfaces. It's bad for data transfer, but it turns out it's excellent for declared UIs. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that there needs to be, um, in terms of how these things are actually implemented, each XML element that we sort of provide or each UI component that we provide has to have basically a one-to-one -one mapping to some sort of native component. So I talked earlier, like if you type button, like the open tag, button, close tag, uh, what NativeScript will do is actually instantiate and turn that into a UI button on iOS and Android.widget.button on Android. 
And that sort of same parallel applies with basically any number of the, the dozens of UI components that we provide. We're basically translating it that into some native component that it's available on both iOS and Android. So I saw that when I was scrolling through the website. And one thing that I've wondered about, I guess probably there's different ways to feel about this, but you're creating an app that's then going to look different on every platform. It's going to look different on iOS, different on Android, different on Windows phone, different on Firefox phone. How do you know that what you're doing is going to look good at all? And what if the way that Android does it you think is ugly or something? Yeah, so your app will look different on the two different platforms, but that's sort of by design. Like the whole point of sort of building native or going native using native UI components is that you want your app to take advantage of the native ecosystems. You want your iOS app to look like an iOS app. You don't want to look at, make it necessarily look like you're interacting with a browser. And the same thing with Android. You want to be able to use things like material design, like leverage the Android back button, things like that. So in terms of how you customize your app, NativeScript provides a number of different ways for you to sort of fork your code to handle iOS or Android differently. Like you can actually define a completely different XML file. Like say if you wanted your view to look completely different from Android or iOS, you could do say .android.xml file, .ios.xml file. Usually you don't need like things that are that drastic that you're completely redefining entire views. Normally you need things that are just like small tweaks. So in your XML, you can actually use there's we have an Android XML tag that you can plop in and say basically saying this section of XML only applies to Android and this section only applies to iOS, for instance, as well. And usually you can get by with little tweaks like that, because even though iOS and Android are different, usually your your sort of high-level paradigms are going to be there. There's going to be things like tab views. There's going to be things like scroll views for scrolling pages, list views, those sorts of things. And I mean, at the end of the day, it, there's a bit of a trade-off involved in going the truly native route and building truly native apps. Uh, there will be more testing. You can't necessarily, just because your app works on iOS, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work and look perfect on Android. There's going to be a little bit more testing involved in reaching these different platforms. But the gain you get is that by using the native UI components, you get something that fits in that platform better, that's going to perform better because it's using these these native UI components. So there's there's a bit of an inherent trade-off with going native, essentially. Someone should totally go in and create an app and switch the base styles for iOS and Android and then release them on the other stores and call them only prettier. <laughs> Which is entirely possible, by the way. I was looking at it and I thought, wow, that is really nice that you can set up a style and say, look, my iOS app needs to look like this. My Android app needs to look like this. And it has kind of the fit and polish, you know, that you would expect on either one so that it doesn't look foreign. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. And usually styling is is a smaller piece of the puzzle. Like when you think of all the things that have to go into building your apps, like really where the big gain comes from using something like NativeScript is taking advantage of all like the silly little things that you don't want to have to care about on iOS or Android. Like usually building the UI is sort of the fun part because people generally have their smartphones. They know, have an idea of what they want their app to look like. But for instance, no one wants to know how to make an HTTP call in an Android app. Like no one wants to learn the Java code to do that or God forbid the Objective-C code that you need to do that. So it's far easier to call like NativeScript implements the web's fetch method and just to use the fetch syntax to make your HTTP call and sort of take care of those like nitty gritty things that you really have no concern with and to then focus on your time on sort of just tweaking your app and polishing it for the different platforms that you're building it for. So what you're saying is NativeScript is the jQuery of phones. <laughs> sure. Halloween was last week. Right. I would say NativeScript does try and build upon existing standards and principles for all of the things that are implemented. So like binding expressions in the XML are polymer binding expressions. And the HTTP method is the fetch API. It matches the, the fetch API. And so we've tried very hard to define standards instead of defining our own. And then asking developers to come, hey, why don't you come learn a different binding syntax? Or, you know, why don't you come learn a completely different way to style your applications? Which I think is really off-putting 
for developers. Not that we don't know the language. It's just that we really don't want to learn your framework, right? We just kind of want to, we want to learn principles that we already know. And that's the underlying concept behind NativeScript. I was at Google IO earlier this year and Burke came up to me and said, what do you think about NativeScript? And I was like, I don't know what it is. Sounds dumb. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were, sounds dumb so we far. Were, that is such a great I, default answer. I don't know. Yeah, sounds yeah, dumb. We were asked questions, really. <laughs> and uh, so he starts explaining it to me, and like he he does a really good job explaining it. And I say to him, I was like, No, nah, that's not a real thing. I would know about that if that was for real. And he's like, No, we built it. It's called Native Script. I'm like, ah, I don't think that's real. I would have heard about that by now. And uh, I went home that night because he swore it was real, and it was. And uh, I started messing around with it, and it was so cool it was how easy it was to, like, write one set of services with two different UIs on top of it. And I had something going in an emulator for Android and for iOS, and I was like, wow, that was insanely easy to write two apps with only two UIs but one back, like, one services layer. It was pretty cool. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of native scripts. Yeah, that was, I remember that because we were both wearing headphones at the uh, Google I.O. party and screaming over dueling DJs. Do you remember that? They had like two yeah. DJs and yeah, yeah. you had to like switch between channels to pick your DJ. We yeah, were screaming yeah. about native script over the talk of thousands yeah. of <laughs> dancing developers. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that you said to me was that same night was you were like, no, nah, I've heard of React Native, but I haven't heard of, heard of native script, which is generally the sentiment that we get. And oddly enough, NativeScript was released just prior to React Native, but people tend to sort of lump those two in together. Now, the NativeScript team does work closely with the React Native team, just in terms of like knowledge transfer. Both are open source projects. NativeScript really tries to abstract you completely away from having to write any native code. So the way that NativeScript works is that it injects into the global namespace of the VM all of the meta information for the APIs for iOS and Android, depending on which platform you run it on. Then what it does after that is that it wraps a lot of these things inside of very convenient and a very plain and simple API. But there are pieces of a native SDK that you're going to have to get that the framework's not going to provide for you. And this is true even for React Native. But the big difference is that in NativeScript, you don't ever have to write native code. And this is really super confusing for people. But even if you're calling native APIs that we don't wrap, you call them through JavaScript. So you do it like if you were working with a UI color on iOS, you would say UI color, you know, dot init with you know, whatever the method name is, straight out of the docs. And that would actually work inside of JavaScript, but without that goofy Objective-C message passing syntax. The difference there between that and React Native is that in React Native, you do have to write a few of your own custom bindings, I guess they call them, for components that don't exist. So you have to drop in and write some lower level code, I believe. But I would say I haven't used React Native, so. So you you end up either having to learn Android or needing an Android or, or sorry, or iOS developer to get some of it done. Right. That's the idea that you do. You will have to know some native code. And even with native script, you're going to have to eventually, it's, it's a lie to tell people that you can build entire applications and never have to touch the native APIs. That's just not going to work, right? In a real world application, there's going to be native APIs that we don't wrap that you're going to want to call. But at least you don't have to go and open up Xcode and write Objective-C. You don't have to write Java. You can stay inside of JavaScript and just call the API. Just go find the doc and call the API, and it'll still work. So if I understand what you're saying, to write those bindings in React Native, I end up needing to know some objective, or I need a developer to write it. But in Native Scripts, you guys have some sort of reflection on top of it where I can just talk to some API, and it reflects and goes and talks to those APIs for me? Or how does that work? To take a step back, when we talk about these APIs being made available, really what NativeScript does is actually take kind of a, a representation of iOS and Android and sort of injects it into the JavaScript VM. So if you look at JavaScript core, which we talked about earlier, one of the things you could do in NativeScript is you could just type new UI alert view, which is an iOS API. It's implemented in Objective-C. But with NativeScript, we make that available from JavaScript directly. So we actually use JavaScript cores, C++ APIs to make these, these various APIs available to you. And we'll actually interpret that directly from JavaScript. So we'll take care of the hard work of making sure that JavaScript code that you write actually turns into the native representation. 
So the cool thing about that is that when you need to go native, instead of, say, opening Xcode or opening Android Studio or whatever native tool you'd need to use, you can stay directly within JavaScript. So the code that you're writing stays basically the same. The APIs are going to be the same regardless. But by staying in JavaScript, you stay sort of in a, a sort of a mindset that you're more comfortable with instead of having to dive into native world to get some certain tasks done. So does that apply Indeed. to every API, like even like strings and things that are provided for you on iOS? Yes. yes. Yeah, it does. The other thing it applies to is every third-party library that's out there. So one of the other things that we wanted to do is we wanted to leverage the rich ecosystem that iOS developers have. Um, if you do iOS, iOS development, you know that there's insane components out there that people have built and then open source. Like I think Fitbit has like charts that they open sourced and put out there. And Flipboard's got this like crazy diagnostic tooling that they put out there. And then there's this pods, which is, you know, similar to NPM for web developers. Yeah, that Cocoa pods. Just, Cocoa pods, right. To just pull in these libraries and use them. And if you want a drawer, you can just, you know, pod in a drawer. If you, if you want, you know, some, I don't know, whatever you might use on iOS, you just pod it in. And so the way NativeScript works is it actually allows you to use Cocoa pods and pull them into your application. And when you do that, we run reflection on those and then we pull those and we shove that into the VM so that you can use third party libraries for iOS and Android still without having to drop down and write any native code. So it's kind of mind blowing. So, so essentially from what I gather, cause I know that you can do this the other way from a Swift or objective C app where you can actually write some of your logic for your application in JavaScript. And what it does is it spins up a JavaScript process and then passes essentially messages to it saying, uh, load this JavaScript file. And then here's the function call. So are you essentially doing it the other way where you spin up an objective C or Swift runtime or an LLVM process and then say, here's what you should have a binding to run that. So it's a bit different. So my mental model for sort of how NativeScript works is we sort of treat the JavaScript VM. So if we, we stick with the JavaScript core and iOS example, we sort of treat it in a similar manner to how the browser operates a JavaScript VM. Mm -hmm. So if you think of JavaScript core, like JavaScript core knows about JavaScript things, but it doesn't know about browser things. Like it doesn't know what the window object is. It doesn't know what the document object is. Safari, you'll have to have APIs. It has to have mechanisms to tell JavaScript core, here's what a window object is. Here's how it works. Here's what you should do when the user of this actually like calls things on the window object. And so with NativeScript, we do something similar with iOS. We'll say, okay, Here's what the UI alert view API is and plus all the other various iOS APIs. Here's what all these different APIs are. And there's C++ APIs to actually do that. And then there's also C++, say, like callbacks, essentially, that lets you configure what happens when these APIs actually get invoked. So in a way, we're sort of leveraging the JavaScript VM to run the iOS app and using that VM as the thing that actually handles the execution in a similar way that the browser would handle it, the same sort of task. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Yeah, I think so. A question for you about that. I can only imagine that there were weird edge cases you've encountered where the semantics of the, like, say, iOS Cocoa API are hard to map onto the semantics of JavaScript. Specifically, I'm thinking like message passing, especially like nil handling and stuff. How do you guys deal with those kinds of things? And did you have any particular cases that were hard to map to JavaScript? Oh my gosh. TJ, you want to go ahead and... Yeah, message passing is the one that is a very good example because it gets very complex, really tricky. And the JavaScript code needed to sort of handle that ends up being more verbose than you would care to be to handle it. I'm trying to think like, if you look at the NativeScript docs, if you go to docs.nativescript.org and scroll to the bottom, there's a section on runtimes for each iOS and Android each have their own section where we sort of drill through the edge cases of this. And it gets kind of weird in certain situations. But for the most part, the sort of common things that you need to do in an app actually are relatively straightforward. Like although there are certain differences in a java.lang.string and an ns string and JavaScript's concepts of a string, like for the most common things that you need to do, it's actually fairly similar. The same thing with sort of uh, your basic integers. Those things are fairly straightforward. And we try to document the things that where it gets really murky and strange. But those things are less common that you actually have to deal with in a common application. Sure. Yeah, the term that I was looking for was marshalling. And there's a whole section on marshalling in the docs that goes over, like, how do we how do we do that? How do we, you know, create an array or map to an array or, and things like that? So 
really interesting stuff that the team has put together here. So another along those same lines, like what do you do with native APIs that require you to pass to them native objects? Like let's say you have some widget that needs to be passed like an NS dictionary, and there's really no equivalent to NS dictionary in JavaScript today, but we do have immutable data structures from third parties. You know, how did you map that? Well, you actually can create an NS dictionary in native script, believe it or not, because you do have the ability to call those native APIs, like I said. So if you actually went into NativeScript and asked for a new dictionary object in iOS, you'd get one. And you would say var dictionary equals, and then you'd create one and you'd get it. And then you could pass that then to some native API that was expecting a dictionary. Oh, okay. Um, and is that an example? However, Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I don't know if that's exactly what you were asking, but the way that the marshalling works, we do actually preserve those types, I believe. TJ, is that correct? Or am I speaking out of turn? Yeah, basically, NativeScript has to sort of manage two different states. So there's the state that the JavaScript VM knows about, and there's the state that sort of the, the parent app knows about. And what NativeScript will do in that case is that you would type your NS dictionary. NativeScript's going to pass you back a pointer to that native object and essentially keep a map that it knows that that NS dictionary has been allocated for you to use. So in your JavaScript code, you would type like new NS dictionary, and you'd be able to pass it the API. And under the hood, there would be a true NS dictionary object, and that NS dictionary object would get passed to that API. And then uh, if you knew one of these up, are you responsible for uh, deallocating it later? So, yes. No. Well, yes, no? <laughs> well, so... <laughs> Classic memory management answer. It could right. be arc. <laughs> that was perfect. So... Memory management is hard. I don't think that's necessarily a surprise. And the native script runtimes are actually fairly smart about being able to figure out some of those things. But there are some cases, especially if you're building certain apps that are uh, more complex or using certain kinds of objects, where you will have to sort of give the native script runtimes hints for things to be sort of uh, reallocated appropriately. Does that make sense? That yeah, sounds dumb. I, I, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> a little frosty, my little frosty snark moment. Oh, that sounds dumb. I don't like it. <laughs> I, I Memory management sounds yeah. dumb. So I've got a quick question, and this is something that I asked the folks on Ionic, too. They had kind of a different answer because their tables are all built in HTML, and then they handled this case differently. In your case, are you actually putting in a native UI table view when you display a list of things? And if so... One thing that I'm aware of is that it has its own APIs that it links back to the controller and expects the controller to implement so that it can say, what are the elements at this index? So that when you scroll up, it reuses the UI table view cells and does the magic so that it looks like it's scrolling, but it doesn't actually have to redraw any elements onto the screen. So do you handle those cases or do you handle them differently and in your own special little way? Well, what we do for those complex cases is we wrap those components for you. And if you go into, if you create a native script project, you'll get a folder in there in your app called TNS modules. And then inside of TNS modules, you'll see all of the different things that we implement on your behalf in JavaScript. And one of those is a complete set of UI components, very common components, right? Text views, labels, buttons, list views being one as well. Um, and we even implement things like virtual scrolling in our list view for you. So the idea being that the developer should be able to create a list view and markup, wire up the events just in the markup and then handle those events in JavaScript. And then we'll worry about all what happens to the cups in terms of, you know, references to cells and to the controller and, and back and forth and, and like that. TJ, do you want to add to that? Yeah, we will on iOS create a UI table view. That is how our list view is implemented. So if, if you just type list view as an XML element, it's a UI list view under the hood. So really as, as a more broad statement too, one of the cool things about having this, this mapping and sort of this direct access to iOS and Android is that Really, anything in native, anything that you can do in an iOS or an Android app, you can do in a native script app. So, really, any question of if I saw this in this iOS app or I saw this in this Android app, can I do it in native script? The answer is always yes. It's just a matter of whether we've created sort of an abstracted view to make that easy for you, like in case of a list view, or whether you have to sort of dive into the native code to, to sort of make that happen yourself. Hmm. Another thing that we do there for people that do dive into the native code is we allow you to publish those things as NPM modules or NPM libraries. I don't want to... I used NPM modules once. Somebody was like, they're not modules. They're 
library. So I'm make sure I don't know what else <laughs> there. I think they're a package that can contain modules. Is that the right terminology? There we, that's what I was looking for. That's it. How Most packages contain one module, but anyway, it, that sounds dumb. <laughs> that is dumb. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it when you're doing it wrong, so get it right. <laughs> yeah, and you better use the Oxford comma, too. Oxford right, don't comma get me started dumb. on that. <laughs> <laughs> so I have two questions I want to ask to you guys that I want you to address before we end. One is, can you talk to us about, I know you guys are in talks with the Angular team. I'd like to hear how that's going. What's the plans with native script and Angular 2? The second question is, for most of us who want to start using native script at work, we can't, like rewriting the entire app isn't an option, but we want to be able to start writing features going forward. I know that that's not an option in native script. Can you guys talk to us about your plans to like enable that? Those are my two questions I want to hear. Yeah, so as you mentioned, we've been working with Google and the Angular team for pretty much the, the better part of this year since I, I think May. I think for those that aren't aware of that, one of the nice things about NativeScript is that there's many, since the APIs that are available are really low level, you can build sort of a number of different abstractions on top of it. And we sort of at Telerik have been fans of Angular for quite a while. But Angular 1, if you're familiar, was tightly coupled to the DOMs. So everything in Angular needs the DOM to work. There is no DOM in native script. So Angular 1 was sort of out. But as soon as Angular 2 came out and we had this model of trying to build these UIs that weren't tied to the DOM, we instantly tried to get that sort of thing working in native script. And we do have an implementation right now. Um, if you go to github.com slash native script and you just do a search for Angular there, you'll find we have a few different samples and our repo. Uh, but the idea is that, especially with one of the biggest things we try to, to sort of talk about with native script, and Burke talked about this earlier, is letting people reuse skills they already have. Well, one of the major opportunities for that is sort of Angular 2. Being able to share some of your Angular 2 code potentially with your web app and also with your native iOS and Android app. Cool. How's the plans coming along with that? It's going really well. Just demoed our sort of our first pass at integrations during Angular Connect. Aaron, I know you were there for uh, the session that Sebastian did on that. Of course, it's very new. We're a bit tied to Angular 2's release schedule, so we can't really release until they do. But fortunately, they involved us really early on. Well, I say early on, but a lot earlier this year. So we've had a lot of time to work on it. And they continue to work closely with that team. I would expect that we shall be ready around the time that Angular 2 is ready. Cool. Whenever that is. <laughs> Whenever. Somebody could find out. We would love to know. Yeah. Yeah. And really, if you want to learn more about it, uh, Burke mentioned this too, but all the Angular Connect talks are up on YouTube. And if you look for just sort of native script Angular Connect, you'll find one of our colleagues, Sebastian, did a talk about it that goes into more detail than we'll have time today. So it's a pretty good watch. Yeah, cool. that's a, an excellent point. And one of the things that he talks about that I think is really interesting is is a diagram where he shows Angular and how the idea with Angular 2 being that you could either go the web route or, or you could go the native route and that your business logic should be able to work in both places. I think one of the tough things about writing native code is that your business logic gets siloed inside of you know DLLs or inside of portable class libraries or jars yeah. or whatever you happen to be using. But if you're able to write JavaScript objects and use them everywhere, then in, you know theoretically speaking, you could centralize your business logic and stop having to duplicate it in multiple places. Which you know I think is kind of the unicorn that we're all we've all been chasing for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Aaron, your other question about adding NativeScript to existing projects. I noticed that Valio, who's our PM, had sent me a GitHub issue. So they are working on it. Apparently, you're not the first person to request that. But if anybody here that is listening wants to, you know, have, has a feature request or wants to know the status of something in NativeScript, you can go to github.com slash NativeScript and uh, send your pull requests or your issues. If it's a good idea, we'll just tag it as a feature request and get it in there. Cool. One thing that I've really been wanting to dig into is like building stuff for Apple Watch or Pebble. Can you use NativeScript to build out anything for wearable stuff right now? We have a proof of concept out there for Apple Watch. It's one of those things that is, again, sort of depends on demand for how much we support some of these other devices. But if you go to github.com slash NativeScript, you'll, you'll see sort of our beta Apple Watch idea. And really, it, this kind of goes back to the same point I had said earlier that anything that you can do in iOS app, you can do in NativeScript. So you can build Apple Watch apps using NativeScript. It's just a matter of it might be a bit of 
manual work to get it up and running. And that's sort of currently where our Apple Watch situation is right now. I know that Pebble has Pebble JS. You can write your apps directly in JavaScript. It, it wouldn't be the same as native script, obviously. But do you know if Apple Watch has JavaScript core on it? Because it doesn't, <laughs> technically speaking, have a browser or anything like it on there. Uh, well, I think in the current incarnation, it's dependent upon the phone, okay. right? Like, don't you have yeah. to have a... So that's phone does the heavy where lifting. Right. The phone right. Does, so that would be where your native script would, you know, runtime would be. And then your APIs would talk to the watch app. Okay. So as TJ said, you could do it since you can call any API. We just, we have not yet provided the fancy schmancy wrappers for you and the scaffolding on a new project to do that. Okay. Um, I think, you know, we're looking at wearables very closely, but we're really trying to nail the mobile developer experience to make that just gorgeous, right? The best possible workflow, all of the right wrappers for all of the right UI widgets so the developers can be productive really, really, really quickly. Because without that successful mobile app, you know, who gives a crap about wearables? <laughs> you don't have a successful mobile app. You definitely don't have a successful wearable. So Yeah, I was also going to ask about Apple TV, but I think the answer is kind of the same, where it's so new and you it, know, it just, is. just don't know. Yeah. And again, we have a proof of concept just to see, like, can we do it? And what does it look like? So we've done it, um, but we haven't, yeah, we haven't provided the wrappers or, or scaffolding yet. The other question I have is that on iOS in particular, and I'm sure Android has something very similar that parallels it, is that you can build applications that are universal. So they run on both iPads and iPhones. How does that work with native script? Well, that's a great question. TJ? You can do that as well. And I think one of the challenges there is sort of providing, really, it's your UI layer again, like building a, a view that looks good, both on like a small little iPhone and also an iPad as well. So one of the things you can do in NativeScript is, in addition to providing, say, different XML views for your iOS and Android app, we also have what, I forget what we call it, like resolution dependent or something mm -hmm. uh something where you can provide essentially different XML files for based on the pixel density or the size of the device that you're sort of outputting to. So you could provide a different XML file for, say, large iPads, small iPads, small iOS devices. Um, really, you can get as fine-grained as you want to sort of configure what it is you're building. Now, obviously, there's going to be a bit more work with every type of different files type that you want or different uh, device that you want to support through that means, but that is something that you can do. Sounds great to me. So what prompted you guys to create native script in the first place? So at Telerik, we've had a, I don't know if people know this, but we actually, in addition to sort of building web tools, we have Kendo UI that we've had. Kendo UI is actually turning four. So it's, it's been out for quite a while. And we also do native development. So we have native iOS controls, native Android controls, native Windows phone controls as well. And NativeScript really came out of an effort to sort of unite the best of both worlds. Like, we don't want to give up, say, some of Native's best things, like Native's performance, Native's gorgeous UI components, some of the things that we love about the Native apps that we use on our phones every day. But we also love things, a lot of things about the web. So web has the fast development cycle. It's JavaScript code. It's interpreted. You can view changes right away. JavaScript web code is also very easy to deploy. You don't have the craziness of native build cycles. So native script really came out of an effort to sort of unite the best of both worlds. And sort of we get as frustrated building for all these different platforms as everyone else does, especially as a software company, we're sort of on the front lines of that sort of thing. So NativeScript was really our effort to sort of simplify that process. So to just provide some historical context on this, about three years ago, well, actually four years ago, right about the time we launched Kindle UI, we were at the same time working on a hybrid development solution which at four years ago, now, you know, everybody's doing that. Four years ago, there was not anybody else was doing that. The only other player out there was Adobe doing PhoneGap build. And what we discovered in the process of doing that was that developers would build out these hybrid apps really fast because they knew web dev. So they could do that. They could build the UI and they loved that. And then they would start trying to add PhoneGap plugins to their app. Like I want a native action sheet and I want a native social share and I want a native tweet and I want a native this, that, and the other. And then it would get to the point where they were like, can you just translate all my HTML into native plugins? Right? Can we, is there some way that we can have a, a framework that where we just end up with a native application on the other side? Because we kept converging on that point. So that's kind of where NativeScript was born out of, was this idea of 
can we, you know, take what web developers already know and turn that into a native application? And it morphed over time. It, you know, it started out like that sort of conversation and then it changed as we began to look at that. Like, well, no, we can't really change all your HTML into PhoneGap plugins. That's not really feasible. But here, you know, this solution actually would work. And can we make it so that nobody ever has to touch native code again? Hmm. What kind of companies are using native script today to build apps and what are they doing with it? You have any cool stories? Well, <laughs> we don't have any cool customer stories at the moment that I can think of. I know that there's, and the only reason I say that is because I don't know, um, because we do a lot of, Telerik does a lot of commercial deals. I don't, I'm not sure who we can talk about. So I, I got a couple names that just popped into my head, but I don't want to say them because I'm not sure if that's okay or not. Uh, TJ, do you know if we have anybody that's, we can publicly disclose, like, no, aside from our indie developers? Yeah, I, I think the nature of Telerik as a company is a lot of our customers tend to be these companies that I'm not sure if we can disclose. The one thing I will say is if you go to nativescript.org, we have different samples out there, and that's the sort of place to look for different apps that are out there. You can find a few different apps that are out in the App Store. If you search for NativeScript examples, we have a recent app that's out on Google Play. It'll probably be out on iOS by the time this podcast airs. We're sort of in the iOS approval state right now. But I think it's nativescript.org slash samples, and you can see a bunch of different apps that you can check out. So with that approval, what, were you, what was that again? Now, like, does that mean that if I were to go build an app with NativeScript, can I get it in the store right now? Yes, and we have several apps out in the store yet. I'm kind of wondering, uh, it sounds like people are using this for some fairly specific uses. Are there things that NativeScript really isn't good for, like writing games or building, I don't know, other apps Teslas. that do other stuff? Yeah, Teslas. <laughs> I would say um, at the moment that, yeah, it's probably not quite ready for primetime gaming. We did just implement a brand new animations framework. So we're moving in that direction, right? The idea being we want to cover all use cases. But I, I think that if you were going to sit down and write, you know, some crazy game like Osmos or, or some great game like that, right, that you would find yourself, you know, very, very heavy inside the native code. Um, what do you think, TJ? Yeah, if you're trying to create the next Flappy Bird clone, NativeScript might not be the best choice for you. But if you're looking for a framework that lets you build sort of your your traditional app, like a line of business app, and even a step beyond that, like you want a quick and easy way to use your web dev skills to sort of build a really common scenario for an app. I think NativeScript is one of the fastest ways you can get that done. So you've got components or modules or whatever you want to call them for things like audio and video and web and APIs and all that stuff. Correct. Yes. And the other thing too, is that, so in addition to the things you'll find sort of documented on the website. Like if you go to NPM right now and just search for native script, just to give you an idea of what's out there at the time that this is recording this, if you've got 70 plus things, so you'll see things like native script phone. If you want to make phone calls in your app or send SMS messages, native script sound, play sound files, like you'd mentioned maps, clipboard, screenshot, email. So it's a fun list to look through to just give you an idea of the sort of things that are out there that you can accomplish. And you need those plugins to do those kinds of things. It depends on the specific scenario. Okay. Usually the plugins are there because they're not in the core NativeScript framework. Yes. Okay. What about testing or debugging? Oh, uh, actually, testing is great because you just can use the same tools that you were using before, at least for QA testing. Now, if you're talking about like unit testing frameworks. Yeah. I'll let TJ cover that one in a second. As far as the debugging goes, uh, we offer several different ways to debug your application. You know, one of them is the console, which will, you know, shell out if you were going to shell something out to the console, just like you would in a browser, but instead it comes out to the terminal or the mm -hmm. command line on Windows. We also allow you to connect to your instance with Safari Inspector. And you can basically step through your JavaScript the way that you would a web app, which is kind of nuts. I can't even believe that works, but somehow it does. Those are the, the debugging scenarios. You know, unfortunately, native apps have really bad UX when it comes to crashes, right? They just disappear unceremoniously. Mm -hmm. And so there is some of that that you have to deal with. Um, it's not like the web where the browser is extremely forgiving. If something doesn't work, it'll just kind of barf, but it sits there and waits for you to inspect everything. The native apps don't do that. So the debugging experience is different, but at the same time, you can still use Safari Inspector, which is close to Chrome DevTools, not quite the same, but it is, it's definitely a familiar environment. So if it crashes on, somebody's phone halfway across the world, I'm not going to get a whole lot of information about what happened. 
Well, it's a native iOS app, so you'll get the same amount of information that you would get from any native okay. iOS app, and which means you might want to leverage some sort of service that there's there's a whole ton of different okay. analytics and crash analytics iOS services that you could leverage. Yeah, like Telerik Analytics, TJ. Yeah. <laughs> we need a cha-ching sound. <laughs> there you go. Right? Shameless. What's the, what's the shameless plug sound effect? I don't know. I, I should probably <laughs> disclose that Telerik is a sponsor of Adventures in Angular. Are we? Yep. Kendo UI. I didn't know that. It's oh, a new sweet. thing. Okay. You know, I had forgotten that, but I could tell. I don't know what it was, but I could tell. <laughs> that sounds dumb. I don't like it. Just kidding. It sounds great. Thanks, sponsors. Ching. So anyway, back to testing. So you just hook up something like, I'm blanking on tool names now. And I wanted to say QUnit, but I I know that'll turn people off. Mocha, Jasmine, Karma. Yeah, so the nice thing about being built with JavaScript is that there's a lot of good JavaScript testing solutions already out there. Um, And you can use those as part of your native script app. We have on our roadmap, I think we're going to get it into the next release, where we're going to make our CLI a little smarter about sort of handling those tests for you. Because even though there's a lot of these these JavaScript tools out there, there are some native script sort of specific things in the way that native script starts up its app, that it creates views for that. And we want to provide some some help and guidance for that because we know that's a common thing people are looking for. So you can expect that to be out hopefully in our 1.5 release, which is coming out later this month, and if not shortly after that. And then as far as acceptance tests or end-to-end tests or whatever you want to call them, where you're actually testing from the interface on the phone or on the on the emulator? So for that, you should play the play the shameless plug sound effect again. Because we can okay, talk about right. Yeah. Well, if it's a solution that uh, works, I have no problem talking about it. So go for it. Right. So if we go back and talk about the what we call the Teleric platform, which is the mobile app solution, end-to-end solution for hybrid apps. That's the way it started. And that is not just the IDE or the IDE integration with things like Visual Studio, but it's also the publishing pipeline to get you to the store. It's an internal app store. It's analytics. It's app feedback. It's everything that you need. It's an end-to-end solution. And so because we already have that baseline, we're building on those things and offering native script in that context. So if you were doing things like your user acceptance testing, you would include the app feedback module in your native script application, which would then allow people to send you automatic crash reports, will allow people to shake the phone and then annotate, right, where they see a bug or something's not right, or this isn't what it should be, and send that feedback directly back to the developer where it's consolidated inside of a dashboard. Is that sort of what you were asking there? Yeah. Yeah, I think too, I mean, one question we get a lot that we haven't really got in today is people ask us a lot, well, how do you make money off NativeScript? How do you monetize NativeScript? And a lot of it is sort of the tools and services that we've been describing today, things like the Telerik platform, um, tools that aren't necessary to help you build your NativeScript app. NativeScript's completely free to use from the command line. It's completely open source. Anybody can use it. But we do have these tools and services that we're providing for things like analytics, um, et cetera, that people can leverage if they want to. Yeah, what, one of the things that we discovered early on was, you know, we'd have all these different things. We'd say, hey, look, you, we have an, you can build an app and you can do analytics on it and you can deploy it privately and you can measure it stuff. But the problem was that people couldn't get to app, right? And so we want to make it as easy it is, and free for people to get to the application because you're really not going to need and all this other stuff until you know that you can actually build an application. So we wanted to remove all of those roadblocks for people to their app and then provide them with the complete integrated ecosystem so that they could have all of the things that they needed to actually take their app to the app store and be successful with it. Yeah, and this also makes for a nice uh, like convince your boss moment. If you're one of those people that's in a company that's trying to use a tool like this in your next app, you can know that at Telerik, we do offer not only this tooling, but we do offer support as well for a lot of our tooling as well, which can help make the sell um, if you're trying to convince your boss or some some higher up. <laughs> One other question that just came to mind is data storage. So do you just use Core Data or SQLite? There is a SQLite plugin. We have modules that'll store, that'll leverage Core Data to store things directly on your device. And you can always, you know, there's HTTP service so that you can use some some sort of external provider. I think we have a, someone's working on a Firebase plugin as well that you could use hopefully soon as well. Realm? There's also a, uh, well, there's a bounty out right now for somebody to do Meteor and native script integration. Did you see that, TJ? I forget. I did not. What, somebody put a bounty out for somebody to create Meteor and, and native script integration. And so somebody out there is working. I'm just not 
quite sure who. I can't find a link at the moment. But yeah, everybody wants NativeScript to integrate with their uh, their web framework <laughs> of choice. Yeah, there's a third party database or data yeah, database for iOS called Realm. I was wondering if you have support for that. If they if they have an SDK, it should be fairly easy to write a native script plugin that ties into that. Oh, cool. You could write it and then sell it for eleven two billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Enough to buy a Big Mac. All right. Uh any other questions? That's right. I'm good. All right. Well let's go ahead and do some picks then. Before we get to picks, I want to take some time to thank our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by TrackJS. Let's face it, errors cost you money, you lose customers, server resources, and time to them. Wouldn't it be nice if someone told you how and when they happened so you could fix them before they cost you big time? You may have this on your back-end application code, but what about your front-end JavaScript? It's time to check out TrackJS. It tracks errors and usage and helps you find bugs before your customers even report them. Go check them out at trackjs.com slash jsjabber. This episode is sponsored by Thinkful.com. Thinkful.com is the largest community of students and mentors. They offer one-on-one mentoring, live workshops, and expert career advice. If you're looking to build a career in front-end, back-end, or full-stack development, then go check them out at Thinkful.com. Once again, this episode was sponsored by Braintree. So go check them out at braintreepayments.com slash javascriptjabber. If you need any kind of credit card processing or payment processing in general, they're a great way to go, and we appreciate them sponsoring the show. AJ, do you have some picks for us? Of course I do. So first off, I will pick Caddy Server. I might have picked that before. It's a web server written in Go, but it's a little bit different because it's an HTTP2 web server. So they're just finishing up the Let's Encrypt plugin, and there's also going to be some HTTP2 plugins. So it'll automatically do the... um like push your scripts and stuff that's not implemented yet, but it's getting there and it's written in go. So, you know, it's a safe language. You don't have to worry about vulnerabilities like with Apache, but you also can get in there and play with some of the code and, you know, like get your hands dirty without, you know, cause it's go is a very friendly language, very easy to use. So caddy server. Yeah. Also I'm going to pick, there's a video game called top gear. And in fact, the best Top Gear was probably Top Gear Rally, but it will never be made again because uh, I think it ended up being like Microsoft bought the company that bought the company that bought the company that bought them or something. So they'll never show up on Nintendo again, but there's an Overclock remix that you can listen to on YouTube if you're a Top Gear fan. It'll bring back the memories for you. (laughs) All right. Amy, do you have some picks for us? I do. So based on the episode that actually came out last week, I don't know, I've had this like desire to start digging into more CS topics and kind of like take a break from the back and forth of all the frameworks and all these like kind of details of things that have been going on. So that's what I've been spending my time with on the weekend. I stumbled upon this like absolutely incredible post about bloom filters this weekend. So, you know, of course, like you can go to Wikipedia or, you know, check out uh, like YouTube courses. But this was written by a developer at Medium, and it's kind of meant for people who, like, maybe you're technical, maybe you're not. But he goes into detail about, like, why they use it at Medium so that they can, like, quickly find out whether uh, a post has been seen before. But it's just, like, an incredible – even if you know what a Bloom filter is, you should read this because he, like, tells a story in it. So, I don't know. It just was incredible. Anyway, so that's my first pick. And then my second pick, I was, like – you know, I, th- I thought it was important to, like, thank a couple of people that I've been working with lately because they've been so helpful that I wanted to also thank um, this mentor that I've been working with. His name is Mike Gayhard, and he's a developer at Pivotal. And then he also used to teach at G School, which is one of the – I don't know that G School is still a thing. I'm not certain. But it's one of the only uh, other six-month boot camps. So he has just been extremely helpful, and I wanted to make sure I said his name on here. And that is it for me. Awesome. I'm a Mike Gayhard fan as well. Oh, really? You know him? Yeah, I've met him a couple of times at uh, various Ruby events. Okay, so he's the one, if I keep talking about this, like, mentor that I've been working with, that's who I've been working with. And he is just, like, incredible. I can't believe that, like, someone would give an hour of their time a week, like, not expecting anything in return, like, no payment, no anything, just doing it because he's nice. (laughs) Yeah, I just haven't gotten the bill yet. <laughs> I thought for uh, sure I we would... had had him on uh, Ruby Rogues, but it doesn't uh, look like we have. We'll have to remedy that. 
Yes, he's just so nice. I'm so, so, so grateful. All right. Dave, what are your picks? Okay, well, I just wanted to pick one talk that really touched my heart from Angular Connect. It was actually Joe Eames's talk. It's called uh, Becoming Betazoid, How to Listen and Empathize with Others in the Workplace. And I really, really enjoyed it. I shared it with all my team. And I just think that we could all do better at this, probably. Um, and I think that we could all really benefit from taking some of Joe's suggestions in that talk. So if you have a minute, take 20 minutes out of your day and listen to Joe's talk, How to Become Betazoid. Awesome. I think Joe said you had to be nice to people, which is why I haven't watched the talk yet. <laughs> um, all right. I've got a couple of picks here. I've been, uh, I've just been thinking a lot about some of the things that we can do to be more effective as programmers. And the funny thing is, is that a lot of them are things that really have nothing to do with programming. Uh, they have to do more with how you take care of yourself and how you take care of your, your brain, which is kind of the, the major organ that we use in this kind of work. And so I'm just going to pick a couple of things. I'm probably going to put together like a three or four page pamphlet with 10 or so things that I think you can do right away to actually you know, kind of boost your performance as a developer. Uh, the fir one of the first ones is exercise. And we've talked about this on the show before, but uh, it increases blood flow to the brain. It increases your oxygen efficiency. And, you know, it just does a lot of good things for you so that you can be more effective as a programmer. Uh, the other one is sleep. And getting enough sleep is important if you're exercising, but it's also important just from the standpoint of that's when your brain repairs itself. It's when it catalogs all the memory from the day and things like that. And it's super duper important. There are all kinds of studies out there that tell you that sleep is important. So I'm going to pick that as well. I'll probably go find one of those and pick it next week. But for the meantime, just keep in mind that, you know, exercising and sleeping well are two things that you can start doing right away that will probably increase your effectiveness as a programmer. Aaron, did we get picks from you? Not yet, but I got some. All right, let's hear them. All right, my first pick is Electron. I've been doing some stuff the last few weeks for working Electron, and I'm a huge fan. If you need to write a, a native desktop app, you should definitely look at Electron. It's really, really cool, really, really easy to use. Uh, my second pick is so I used to be on the show a lot, right? And um I used to talk a lot about like throw out a lot of books. And so um I've read a ton of books this last time I was on. I'm gonna just pick one series it was a four book series. It's called The Synchronicity War and it's like future sci fi. It's really, really cool. And I shared it with my friend Dave Guess and he loved it and I've shared it with a couple other friends and they really like it. So I think you'll like it. It's cool. It's a four part series, but, um, check it out. The Synchronicity War. It's a really good book. And, and I listened to it on Audible. The reader's really talented as well. So anyway, check it out. All right. And just to throw this out there, we do have an Electron episode scheduled in December. So it'll probably come out at the beginning of January if everything goes to plan. Keep an ear out for that. Burke, what are your picks? I've only got one today and I'm going to pick an app. I hope that's not too cliche to do that. So I deal with a lot of stress and anxiety. I, I think that most people, you know, are no stranger to stress, but I've unsubstantiated suspicion that developers actually have it worse than most people do just because of the way that our minds tend to work. We're very much. Um, and so I've really been into this idea of mindfulness lately, especially when I travel and I'm in places, busy places, and I get super stressed out. And it's a very simple app. It's called pause. And you put your finger on the screen and there's some nice relaxing music, but it forces you with your eyes to follow this blob as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the whole idea of mindfulness is that when you have anxiety, you're always living in the future. You never live in the moment. You're always worried about what's coming. And mindfulness forces you to, to live in the moment by focusing your mind. Um, and so this works really, really well for me. It's, it's a paid app. It's totally worth it. I know a lot of times we're like 99 cents, man, I'm not paying 99 cents for that. Like that's so much money, but, uh, it's great. I would highly recommend it, especially if you're like me and you deal with a lot of anxiety. It's definitely a good way to, to focus and sort of ground yourself. All right. TJ, what are your picks? So I've got one as well. I've been watching this show, TV show, Outlander, which if you haven't heard of it, it's basically if you've ever wondered what would happen if you touched a stone and you ended back, ended up going back in time to 1740 Scotland, then this is the TV show for you. Because that's essentially the entire plot. This woman touches a stone in Scotland, goes back in time 200-some years, and drama ensues. But very good TV. Cool. What channel is it? Your What network that carries it? Uh, it's Showtime. And I think it's, it aired like a, a year or two ago. All right. 
Well, thank you both for coming. If people want to know more about uh, NativeScript or about Telerik or about anything else that you both are working on, where should they go? Well, if they want to know about NativeScript, they can go to nativescript.org and can uh, get the bits from NPM. It's just a relatively simple NPM install. If you want to know more about the Telerik platform, which we've talked about a little bit during our uh, shameless plugs, that's platform.telerik.com. And if you want to know more about Telerik in general, just go to telerik.com and you can find us there. All right. Well, thanks for coming. We'll go ahead and wrap up the show. We'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 